Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Brown Girls Read podcast. This is your host Aman Tiwana and this is Kathy Thakur and both of us love reading books. On this podcast we bring our favorite books to you and discuss the parts that were most meaningful to us and how we found them interesting or relatable as brown girls. Today we have invited Arlen Hamilton the author of It's About Damn Time on our podcast to discuss more about this amazing book her life experiences as a woman of color in a male dominated society and her journey to success if you haven't listened to our discussion of the book go check out the previous episode now and let's hear a quick word from our sponsor before we bring arlen on today's podcast is presented by podgo podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from podgo I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. Hey Arlen, thank you so much for coming to Brown Girls Read podcast. We are so happy to have you here and we loved your book so much. So it's just mm-hmm. a delight for us to, you know, have you here to learn more about your life, your experiences. Thank you so much for having me here. I just want to ask you to start by just introducing yourselves to our listeners because I'm sure they would love to know more about your life, how you built your business and you know anything you want to share. Yeah, so I started a venture fund called Backstage Capital officially in 2015, but as the book goes into detail on I actually started really thinking about it 2011ish and started trying to raise for it around then as well. Spent about three or three and a half years trying to raise money for a fund that would invest in underrepresented and now underestimated, as we call them, founders. And in my view, for what our purposes, that was women, that was people of color, and that was LGBTQ founders, because I identified it all as all three. I didn't have any background or anything in finance or in tech even. came from I was living in Texas where I grew up born in Mississippi and grew up in Texas with my mom and my brother and I was living back there after having lived in other cities uh, throughout my life throughout my 20s but I was back at kind of zero at scratch didn't have much money to speak of at all um was sharing a place with my mom and then we got kicked out of that place cuz we couldn't pay the rent and then we ended up living in hotels and on uh, people's couches and things like that but this whole time from like 31 to 34 i just really thought there should be this fund that invested in underrepresented founders and it wasn't that i thought that one fund would just change the world and and make all the difference but i thought it's not happening this way exactly so if i can make it happen even on a small scale it can act as and serve as a case study and then you can take that case study and just replicate it I was very like intentional and intent on doing this even through all of the personal ups and downs and hardships and through a series of events that I'm excited about talking about in the book I I made my way to September 2015 and got my first investor and then have just gone off to the races since then That sounds really great actually and it sounds really brave of you and that also reflects in your book actually that's why I think we related to the book so much being women of color ourselves and also we live in the silicon valley so we yeah. do see a bit of this discrimination so it was just so great to read your story and 
to see how you are doing this great work to uplift others from these marginalized communities. Yeah, thank you. It sucks that it's the case. And a lot of times we have to just walk into a room and somebody has an exact imagination of what we are. Yes. And it's usually one very one-sided and very one-dimensional. And that to me is like daily heartbreak. I remember, um, you know, with the book, we're talking about the book. I went to a store for the first time in months because of COVID. I went to a bookstore and I hadn't gone to a bookstore for the several months that my book has been out since May and seen my book in person. I hadn't been to that. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to do it now because I feel like I have some safety measures in place and I'm going to go to certain places I did my research on. So I do all of that. I kind of even leave the the quarantine. I go to two places. The first place doesn't have it. So I go to the second place. The second place has it, but it's been sold out, which is really cool. So I'm like excited about that. But the first place, when I went to it, I went there with like a a Sharpie because I wanted to sign the book like I'd seen so many authors do. Sign the book and you can go find it. And I was followed around the store. Oh, wow. A bookstore. Oh, my like, God. I, like, they thought I, you know, yeah, they followed me around. It was a, it's a nice neighborhood, whatever. I don't even know what that means anymore. But it was an affluent, expensive neighborhood. I also live in an affluent, uh, expensive neighborhood down the street. So, but it was in a, in a expensive neighborhood. I was wearing a hoodie, but I wasn't, didn't have my hoodie on, you know, my hood up. I was walking around and I was the only black person in the store. Everybody else was white. And I was looking for my book quietly, silently looking for the book that I just toiled and had a six figure deal to do and all of that. Right. And all of the things, you know, that I work on with the with backstage, it didn't matter in that moment. What mattered was there was a black woman who's kind of tall and kind of big and has a hoodie on maybe who was not wearing, you know, two thousand dollars worth of clothing. And why is she here? And we just got to make sure she probably won't do anything, but we just got to make sure she doesn't steal $20 worth of stuff from us and put it in her hoodie. I'm so used to it, but I still felt it was like a heartbreak. It was like a daily heartbreak. And so I left and I went to the second store, which I was much more uh, welcomed in. And they had been doing a better job with my book anyway. So, <laughs> so That's horrible, though. I'm so sorry that keeps it's happening. A, yeah, It's okay, but it's, you know, sometimes it happens to an extreme. Sometimes it happens every blue moon and you just forget about it, depending on all sorts of variables. But it is always, it's always tough to take because you're talking about someone personally, even if you don't take it personally. Are instances like these that inspired you to write the book? Yeah. Yeah. They inspired me to write the book to tell my story, to tell people who are, as you, as your podcast is called, you know, Brown girl tree. That's so cool. So it's like, it's to say, not only just to tell my story, which is, you know, very one specific person, but it's to say that so many people are seen and so many people are respected and so many people, there's somebody at least like in your corner saying that you can do this. And I am living proof of that. And I don't think it ends at anybody. I think it continues. It just grows and grows and grows. And there's so much potential and possibility out there. And that doesn't matter what age you are either. It doesn't matter if you've been around the sun a few times. It, there's so much out there for people. So I always, and including in the book, talk about repurposing things. So you repurpose these sad and frustrating occasions and you you turn it into fuel. And then it's like, you know, bring it on. That's awesome. You're an inspiration. Yeah. I think for all the minorities everywhere, right? It was so inspiring to read all the accounts that you have in your book. 
And then I want to get a little bit deeper into the book. The one thing that I took away from it was when you talked about writing your own headline. That just inspired me so much. So I started thinking about what would my headline be? Can you talk a little on that? Like what was your process? Do you think like one should extremely just go all out when they're writing their headline or just be a little bit realistic? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, The idea of it is it's a lot like people have, you know, vision boards or they have different ways that they can. You have to have this sort of, in my opinion, this North Star that you're looking towards to say, where where am I going? What am I doing all of this work for? Whatever it is, why am I doing? Why am I waking up and going to a nine to five job? Why am I working at this place or that place? And why am I building this thing if I am building a company? So the headlines started pretty early in the in the fund process. It started like 2014 or so, about a year before I got my first um, investor. And it was just drafts in my email. And I would say things to myself, like, you know, the head, I would write it as the headline and put dates on it and things like that. And that was the process and has remained the process. The one main headline I had was Arlen Hamilton's Backstage Capital invests in 100 companies by underrepresented founders. And I wrote that in 2014 and I put a date of 2020 on it because I said by 2020, that's a cool date. You know, by then that's what I'm going to do. And it was this really close. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And then we reached that in 2018. And I looked at that almost every day up until 2018. I looked at it over and over and over again, because especially when there was tough times, which there are many, even after getting investment, there are plenty more tough times to come. And then I had a few others that have, some have come true, some have not, some have exceeded my wildest expectation. It was great to have it as a goalpost marker, mile marker. When it comes to what you write and, and, and kind of how you do it, I don't think there's any fast and hard rules necessarily that I have about it. I have found that because it is your personal headline, it's for you. I have found that really letting go and, and dreaming, I think that has really been helpful. When I said I was going to invest in 100 companies, I was poor. It had to be a dream. It had to be a hope and a wish and a, all of these things. But I was, you have to execute on it to make it happen. So I would say if I had written or if I do write today, I'm going to have purple hands and fly. That's probably not going to happen, but maybe it happens in its own special way. You know, maybe I find a jetpack and some gloves. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, I'm not going to go so far crazy with it that it's just something that even if I attained it, what would the point be? But I'm also not going to say right. give myself five years to maybe get a promotion because to me that might, for my personality, that might be too long. That might be giving me an excuse to just be not engaged enough. You want to make the headline something that you instantly start working towards. That's how yeah. you measure it. Like, can I instantly, as I write it, the next step is what do I do to start it? You know, you don't get there immediately, but you start. You start with a draft, right. like. What if your what if your idea is your name publishes the book titled XYZ by 2023? Oh, that that's someone's headline. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to write a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what was going in my head when you were talking, Arlen, that you know, <laughs> I should go. create a headline with a date for my book, because otherwise I will never get to writing it. Yes, yes. And you have there's so many pieces to it. And if you have that deadline in your head, and you start researching and oh, I mean, maybe you already have and you know how publishing works, and you decide how you want to do it, if you want to do it self published, or find a publisher or India, this or that, then you just have these two or three lanes that you can be writing in parallel to each other, and going towards your goal. 
Yeah. And maybe it'll happen in 2022 and maybe it'll happen in 2024, but it won't happen at all if you don't start. I needed to hear that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do you still write headlines now? Yes, well? I do. Yes, I do. I have headlines going right now. Oh, wow. So I'm hearing you talk about the headline and I can't help but notice that there's so much hustle in your personality. Like there's no other way that you would have achieved what you have in the short period of time and considering all the hurdles that were in your way without that kind of hustle. Hustle over the time has also become that Instagram buzzword where everyone's just throwing it around. So I just wanted to have you talk a little bit about how do we identify when a hustle becomes toxic or self-sabotaging and how can we make sure that our hustle is actually effective and productive and it's not just hustle for the sake of hustle? A couple of things, I mean, there's a couple of questions and a couple of things come to mind. The second question you asked about how do we tell when it's real and when it's busy work is how much of it you're posting about and not actually doing. Mm-hmm. Whether it's posting on social or telling people or whatever. Most of my hustle happens behind all of the social. I know that I'm out there a lot, but that tells you something. <laughs> Majority of what I do that is like the true stuff is not even being applauded publicly. That's where the substance comes from. Really, when you talk about like, I can pop out and say, oh, I got $6 million from Mark Cuban to make investments. And you can see that as a headline and people are applauding that. But what that took was two years, a year and a half of real hustle behind the scenes. We did one kind of round last year for a, an indie website. We didn't even like take it to Fast Company or Forbes, which we could have. We did it for an indie site that we both had invested in. And we said, okay, we're going to talk about a little bit about this. And then we waited another year to talk about it more. But in the meantime, I was investing. In the meantime, backstage team, we were all hustling. So that need or desire you have to immediately explain it to other people can be a good marker of, is it real work or is it something that is like just so you can play catch up or something? The way I think about hustle and hustle culture and all of that is a little bit like, you know, when I when I compare it to self-love and put it in the same vein, it's a little bit like how I think about love itself. You know, depending on your situations, your different ages, whoever's listening, you know, like depending on who who you are, you may have been in a toxic relationship before, and you may have been in a great relationship before. And maybe you, because you've been in both, you know what one feels like and one doesn't. And love isn't supposed to hurt. Love isn't supposed to be really difficult. It can be challenging and it can be, you can make sacrifices, but it isn't supposed to, the bad isn't supposed to outweigh the good. So that's how I feel about hustle. If you're tired all the time, and if you're stressed all the time, and if you're sacrificing events or time with your family and your friends and all these things, you're in a toxic relationship with your hustle. And kind of like this red light that should be pinging, 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 you know, check engine, <laughs> pull over, <laughs> because it's not supposed to hurt. It's not yeah. supposed to be exhaustive in the fact that it's like depleting. It's supposed to fill you up and give to you. That's how I started measuring it. That's awesome. I don't think I've heard this perspective ever before. If you're going to Instagram for motivation, hustle can actually just be portrayed as something so different from what you just said. Yes. Also keep in mind that most of the people who are touting hustle, including yelling at you for not hustling enough and not being real enough or wanting it enough, blah, blah, blah. 
most of those people have like a full team behind them. Most of them have some cushion. I'm not saying they're rich, but they have some cushion, whether they earned it themselves or not. I'm not saying I'm not taking away from what they've done, but the people who have the platforms to say these things to people aren't living the same lives as those people. So how can they, how can they say you need to be as hustle as much as I do when they don't have your five person glam team or your three person strategy team? Or in some cases, it's one parent taking on the brunt of the home stuff. If their kids involved and there's a home and there's parents involved and the other one who is out there on the stages screaming about hustle doesn't have to worry about soccer practice or getting every meal made. Right. Yeah, that's so, so true. I, I, I always like try to look at the source of who's telling me what I should be doing. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Yeah. So talking of advices, what is that one advice that you would like to give to people of color and uh, minorities who just want to you know, start working on their own idea and they don't have a lot of contacts uh, mm. or they have very limited contacts? Well, I didn't have a lot of contacts in this space when I started in uh, backstage. I had contacts elsewhere. So I'll do it twofold. One piece of advice is to no matter where you are in life and what you want to do now and what you may want to do later is to start cultivating your network today. And that doesn't mean it has to be anything fancy. It doesn't have to be anything where the people you're networking with are super successful because some of those people will grow with you. You just don't want anybody in your circle who's going to bring you down. Yeah. But start networking now, building your network now, which is like really thinking about um, what you have. I'm, I'm big on like this diagnostic idea of like so many people are reaching for something or going towards something, but they don't even look around what they already have. Who mm-hmm. is in your network today and what can you do to cultivate that today? Can you, for instance, host a monthly Zoom I know people who do that really well. They're not trying to get anything specific. They're not trying to like raise for something or do something. They're just like, while we're here, how about every quarter or every month on Tuesdays at four, we get together for 30 minutes and just talk about our lives and build that over time or you do it another way and you build it over time. Three years from now, when you are looking for that very specific thing, somebody in that group knows somebody in their group who can make that happen for you. You put these pieces together. So if you're not doing that today because you're waiting for something to be so perfect later down the road and then I'm going to go ask, it's going to be too late for you. I was on a blow up bed in Pearland, Texas. I had the Internet, which I was so grateful for. I had a smartphone, had a laptop. I had no car. There was no way to get to anybody. There was no way to go fly. I couldn't afford a flight to San Francisco. This was just six years ago that I was 34 years old in this situation. But I still said, well, okay, I can email people. I can, I can research people. I can relate to people. I can ask the people I already know if they know people. I can do some cold calling. I can do some curated conversation with people. There's so much you can do right now that if you're not doing it or if you're, you're waiting for it to happen for you or if you think that you're not in the right place, like, I don't have anything going for me, so why should I reach out to somebody? This is where you are today. It's not where you're going to be, hopefully, right? Like this, this is how you make things happen. This is how I made things happen. Starting from scratch. That's why I feel like the book is so um, relatable to people. And you can talk to me about that too, because I think it's like, I'm not t- telling you what to do once you've already gotten rich and how you do it. Right. I'm telling you like, I was dirt poor. <laughs> but what I lacked in finances 
and connections I made up for in ingenuity and I used the time that I had. Anytime that I wasn't working to just make ends meet, I was strategizing. Every single day you can meet one new person. Do you know how many people that is over a few years? Your network is incredible after that. Every single week you can meet a new person. You have 50 new people. And if you strategize about it and you research the people and you know why you want them in your network and you know what you can also, people always say, you know, negotiating always offer value first, 100%. But it's not transactional. It's not, I'm going to help this person today a little bit. So they'll help me a lot in two years. Don't do that. There's just so much alchemy and art and so much can happen over time if you just sort of live your life with great intention have a focused goal, be good to people, be good to yourself, as we talked about. All those things kind of create a perfect storm for a really great life. Yeah, that's actually really good advice. Thanks so much. And we love the instance that you mentioned in the book where you created a goal to meet some number of people every day. 10,000. 10,000 people total was the goal. Yeah, right. That was my goal. I also love the reality check that came later that, oh, I didn't account for how much time it would take to actually, you know, interact with people. To actually be with those people. Because I thought it was going to be like, oh, take a picture. Oh, hey, take a picture. And And I would just upload the pictures at night and it would be on. (laughs) But that was good. And people were like, tell us why you're doing that. Oh, okay. Now, you know, people want to talk about themselves. This is what I do. And then it becomes so interesting. And so, because at first I was like, man, I got to go. But then it was like, Wait, you do what? Oh, that's so crazy. That's so interesting. So what they're talking about or what we're talking about is this quest I had to meet 10,000 people. uh, And I had other reasons for starting it. And then it turned into something really beautiful. And so that's in the book, too. And it's just like I still have such high regard and wonderful feelings when I think about that. And it's kind of like what we just talked about, but manifested like in person, you know. That was one of the most interesting parts of the book because it has so much reality to it. Other than that, I think I really enjoyed reading about your self-care section because to me, it was like so real and relatable. Do you have a self-care routine that you follow for yourself that you can share with us and our listeners? I just practice what I preach a lot. I try and I stop work every single day at six to watch Rachel Maddow. I try to keep my weekends as free as possible. Sometimes, you know, not as free, but I have very, very, very good boundaries and Mm -hmm. they didn't happen overnight. (laughs) So there's no routine other than, you know, watching what I want to watch and giving myself that freedom to say no to people. I also love a good sweatpant. And before COVID, you know, I would say wear get sweatpants and everybody would laugh. And now everybody's in sweatpants all day. (laughs) But that that's pampering. You know, you got to take care of yourself even more today. Right. What are you reading nowadays and any recommendations for us? Well, I have so many books I need to read, um, That, but I'm reading Cast, uh, C-A-S-T-E. That was an Oprah's book club and it's really incredible book. It ties a lot of things together. It's about race. And I am reading Perfect Peace by Daniel Black. And it's actually a book that Journey Smollett handed me in Atlanta a few months ago when I ran into her. The author was with her. Journey Smollett had just that day wrapped filming of Lovecraft Country. And now Lovecraft Country is the show that I've been binging all summer. And so it's just a really wonderful kind of circle. I ran into her. She was talking to the author. They were in great conversation. 
he happened to have a copy of the book. She she gifted me the book, and um, I'm finally having a chance to really dig into it. It's about early 1900s, a black family where I don't know why yet because I haven't gotten there, but for some reason the the mother of these children has her son live as a girl from a very early age. Very interesting, and it was something that they both said that I had to read. So I'm very excited to read it. Sound interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Alan, so much for giving us your time. It's been so great to talk to you, and we have really enjoyed listening to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate your time as well. We hope you enjoyed listening to this intimate conversation with Arlen. We are so happy and so grateful to her for coming on our podcast and being so candid with us. We have learned so much from her and we hope you did too. For our next episode, we are reading a novel by Megha Majumdar called A Burning. We hope you will be reading with us and until then, keep listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brown Girls Read Podcast. If you like what you hear, Please leave us a five-star rating and a comment. You can support us at anchor.fm slash browngirlsread slash support. Your support will allow us to continue this podcast and bring more episodes to you. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram, browngirlsreadpod and browngirlsread1 on Twitter. If you have book recommendations for us, you can leave us a comment or message on our social media. And you can also subscribe to us on YouTube for more content.